Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey, listeners, welcome back, and so glad you could join me today. Today is part two of our series on substance use disorder, and we'll be talking about cannabinoids and a bit about nicotine. My guest is Dr. Cheryl Ryan, who is a professor of pediatrics, the chief of the Division of Adolescent Medicine and director of Outpatient Adolescent Clinical Services at the Penn State Health Hershey Medical Center. She is a pediatrician who is board certified in both adolescent medicine and addiction medicine. After completing her medical education at Yale University and her pediatric residency in the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Dr. Ryan completed an adolescent medicine fellowship at the University of California at San Francisco and a postdoc fellowship in health services research at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. In addition to her current position of division chief, Dr. Ryan is also the program director for the Interdisciplinary Fellowship in Addiction Medicine at Penn State. From 2011 to 2019, Dr. Ryan was a member and then chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Substance Abuse and Prevention, and in that role was the lead author for a number of position papers and technical and clinical reports on marijuana and alcohol use in teens. She is also highly sought after as a speaker, both nationally and internationally, on these topics, especially the role of marijuana on the health of youth and their families. Currently, she is focusing her research on the education of both school personnel and pediatricians in rural areas of Pennsylvania around screening and intervention for youth using alcohol and other substances. This is through a federally funded Project ECHO grant. She is also currently funded through an NIH HRSA grant to train addiction medicine fellows at Penn State and increase the capacity of primary care and behavioral health care providers to treat individuals with substance use disorders. As a board-certified specialist in adolescent medicine, Dr. Ryan also continues to be clinically very active in providing both outpatient and inpatient care to adolescents and young adults with complex medical and mental health issues. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ryan. Hi, Cheryl. How are you? I'm good, Leah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so appreciative of you joining me today. I'm really grateful for your time. I know you're a busy person. So I'll just hop right in. And how did you choose pediatrics and substance use? How did, how did that come to be? Well, you know, I started out in education, actually. I was in college. I was an education major, early education, special education. And I found myself not as intellectually stimulated as I had hoped I would be. So I took a turn towards medicine, but always what it was always about the kids. And even though I went through medical school, keeping an open mind to all the different specialties, I just really gravitated towards the kids and really enjoyed it. And when I got to my residency, I just loved the babies. I loved the little seven-year-olds. and But I just really gravitated towards the adolescents. I just loved having conversations with them and really feeling like for the first time in their life, they were having a primary relationship with the physician rather than it, you know, all through the parents. So that's where, that's where I focused my fellowship on adolescence. And it was hard to leave little babies behind, you know, because I really did enjoy that. But I have to say, you know, I have never regretted working with those adolescents it's just, and young adults. It's just, it's always a challenge and it's always interesting. And I love to see uh, them grow from 13, 14, you know, early adolescent to a young adult heading off to college. And that's one of my, some of my favorite, my favorite patients are seeing them as they, as they emerge into young adults. 
The the substance use for me was a little bit later interest. I had always been doing research on risk-taking. The group that I uh, trained with at San Francisco, UC San Francisco, my research, I tagged along with some of the research they were doing on risk-taking. And that, in the beginning, it was more looking at sexual risk and violence. And then over time, I became more interested in the substance use as one aspect of risk-taking, high-risk behaviors. So that was sort of, and when when I got to Yale, uh, when I spent several years at Yale, I, I developed a collaboration with a group doing research in adolescence and substance use. So that that's, that sort of solidified the inter- the clinical interest with the, the research interests. And, and that's just that's just increased over time as I've gotten more involved, you know, with some of the, the work the academy's been doing uh, when I was on the committee for substance use and prevention. And, and that just sort of has really, uh, really enhanced some of the work that I was doing, connections, networks. And so that's really where it's all where a lot of it is really expanded was through my work with the American Academy. I love these conversations because I think it's helpful to hear for early career physicians and residents and fellows that what you think you may be doing may vary. It may just kind of take twists and turns along the way as you follow your, your passions and interests. And sometimes things happen serendipitously. And, you know, just enjoy the ride. And there's lots of opportunities. I mean, most of us, you know, I didn't grow up going, gosh, maybe when I'm 60-ish, I'll be doing a podcast. I mean, there wasn't a podcast back then anyway. So, you know, it's just kind of go along for the ride. Well, mm-hmm. I have had the the good fortune of speaking with Dr. Joanna Quigley about alcohol use. And I know you've worked together with her through the committee. And we we were exploring alcohol and but I wanted to also dive into the other most common, you know, substance used is, is marijuana, cannabinoids, and of course, nicotine products. And I know it's a huge topic, so we're going to just dive into that. So I guess just the, to start with, I mean, what, is, what does use look like in kids today? Well, you know, I mean, if you look at the data on all use of all substances, comparing, say, the early 90s with where we are today. I mean, there's really been dramatic declines in the rates that kids are, that teenagers and young adults are using substances. Cigarettes, you know, alcohol, all of your substances have really taken some big declines. There are some notable exceptions, but overall, our, our adolescents are using much less. Now, that doesn't mean they're not using them at all. So there are still substantial numbers that are using it, but we, we've really made some strides. I'm not, I'm not sure we really understand what the strides are. It could be just social pressure, could be um, education, it could be uh, recognition of the, the effects of these substances. It's not entirely clear why we've seen such drops in rates, but there have been. But that being said, we still do have significant numbers of our adolescents using things. The earlier, earlier substances like alcohol, tobacco, and marijuana. And those are probably the big ones that our adolescents are using. And, you know, we worry about them because we also know that they can be gateway substances. So that if, if a young person begins early use of, say, alcohol or tobacco or marijuana, say before the age of 13, 14. And we know our ele- later older elementary and middle school kids are using these substances. The younger a person is to start using any of those, the more likely they are to go on and use additional substances and to use them in a way that is problematic, that gets them into trouble with some of the consequences. So, you know, so those those are the big the the big three. And and when you have somebody using early, getting involved in more substances, then it's sort of like it 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 snowballs. And and that's that's the group later that you're going to see is more likely to be using some of the real problematic things like opioids or uh stimulants or you know things like any any of your other illicit substances, cocaine, things like that. Yeah. So what what would you say just, you know, for a person in primary care, just 
just the overall stats, what's the general percent of like high school kids that have used? Mm-hmm. Well, if you look, <clears throat> you know, our kids now are not smoking cigarettes. Okay. Very few, much lower rates, but, but they're using e-cigarettes. So, you know, there are actually some data to show that up to like 35% of your 12th graders have ever used them in the past year, have ever used, have have vaped nicotine products. So, I mean, that's a substantial, that's a substantial number right there. Probably smaller, lower amounts, lower amounts have you ever used alcohol. And when we talk about our eighth and 10th graders, there are lower rates. If you look at things like marijuana, it might be something like 25% of your 12th graders um, have you have ever used ever used marijuana. <clears throat> so these are still, you know, I mean, lower rates are using them in the past month and much lower rates are using them regularly. But, you know, there are still significant numbers that that are using it. So that's where that's where the recommendations to just screen everyone. So during a routine visit, the recommendations really are to screen our young people for for these substances. So so tobacco or vaping, you've got to ask the right questions or marijuana or then asking that adolescent and using anything else to get high pills, cocaine, you know, just anything are really important questions to ask so that you're getting at that smaller percentage that you need to know about. And even if it's, even if they say they've used it within the past year, that puts them at risk. Mm. I was talking with Dr. Quickly about this also about screening and what's your, what's your favorite screening tool that you would recommend for general, you know, primary care use? What, what, you know, what are a couple suggestions? Well, I think that the craft is, it's very user-friendly. So it's, you know, it has, you know, there are three opening questions. All you have to do is, you know, the, the newest version is you ask how many times in the past year you've used a tobacco product, use alcohol, use marijuana, or used anything else to get high. And, you know, if, if somebody says no to alcohol, marijuana, or anything else, you're, you're, you're pretty good. So then they recommend all you need to ask after that is to make sure they haven't been, they may not have been using it and driving, but maybe they're with a friend that's been using or driving. And then there are six questions. So if the young person says more than once to any of those, then you ask the other six questions. And they really relate to whether somebody's using them alone, whether they're using them to relax or a family member is trying to get them to cut back. Or have they gotten into trouble? So then it asks, then it then it says, are there any consequences associated with that one substance? Now, if they say yes to all three of them, you're kind of like, all right, now I've got to ask the same questions about about those other substances. And I I find that that works better than some of the, there are other tools that ask a single question, but you go down the whole list. Have you ever, you know, how many times in the last year have you used? And the list is, can be 10 things because you need to go through each one of the specific. That's a lot of people will find that one easier to use. But I like the craft because it also gives me an idea of not just what they're using or how many times, but are, are, they, get, are they getting into trouble? You know, are they using it to the point where somebody's asking them to cut back their friends or their family? So that I, I and I that's been well validated for both adolescents and young adults. Well, I, I think that's a great suggestion. And, and I, I like the way it's formulated because it is pretty easy and you can do it. Either the clinician can ask or the, the teen themselves can answer. And, you know, there's easy ways to do that. I also like and Joanna and I talked a little bit about it, too, on the flip side of the of the craft, they have just like talking points that you can, you know, if they're not using at all, like, hey, you're doing a great job. That's so wonderful. Or have you ever thought, you know, so I I really like that. That's Mm -hmm. a great suggestion. I was going to ask you a little bit about legalization and sort of this, Mm -hmm. you know, medical use. And I live in, in Michigan and recently marijuana was legalized for both recreational and medicinal use. And does that, or do we have any data? Is that making it easier for kids to get access? Is it normalizing it? What do you think? 
You know, there have been a lot of studies, specifically, the studies have really focused on states like Seattle, Washington State and Colorado, which are really some of the, the earliest states to legalize recreational marijuana. And there was a lot, in the beginning, there was a lot of studies, there were many studies that looked at what was the change in rates of use for those states versus states that had not uh, legalized marijuana. And I think people were really worried that we were going to see uh, huge increases in those particular states. Now, there were some problems that were seen. You know, kids were being, they they were finding that more suspensions in schools are being related to that. They were seeing more drivers maybe being stopped for being intoxicated with marijuana rather than just, you know, being stopped intoxicated with alcohol. But I don't think that the studies overall saw a huge increase in the use in those states. But we have seen increases in rates across the country, and they've been in our young adults particularly in our young adults. That's that's the group. The 18 to 25-year-olds have shown the biggest increases. Now, is that because that, you know, you're 21 and up and it, 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 for those states that are legal, it's legal, but that doesn't account for that 18 to 21-year-old. And we've also seen similar increases in the 12 to 17-year-old group. Now, it's been overall And I don't think we've seen dramatic change differences between those states that have legalized and have not. Now, why is that? I think I think it's because if you whether or not you are in a state that's legalized marijuana or not or legalized medicinal, you're hearing about the fact that it's becoming legalized. And I think what we're seeing is the perception that it's dangerous has really decreased. So. I might be next door to Michigan, okay? So I may not have the same access, but what I'm hearing is, I'm hearing that it's legalized. It's been recreational. So so if I have access to it, if I have access to it, I may be more willing to use it, even if I'm not in a state that's legal, just because I'm hearing, I'm hearing all these states are, you know, if they're legalizing, it's gotta be okay, right? We wouldn't be legalizing something that's not okay. So I think what's happened is, the general conversation about recreational use, about medicinal use, the fact that it's so much more available across the country now, and in Canada, it's legalized across the country. I, I think what's what it's done, it's reduced the perception that it's a problem. And that and we know that there's a direct there's an inverse relationship between perceptions of risk and use. The less risky something is viewed as, the more likely that youngster or that adolescent is is more likely to use a substance. So we know that. And I think that's, I think that has, has led to increases across the country, not necessarily in those states that are, it's just, it may be a little bit more available, but they're still going <laughs> to, they will still have access to it whether or not it's legal, medicinally legal, or 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 not. Yeah. Our team okay. seem to have any trouble accessing things that are <laughs> that are out illegal. there. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, so so it's I mean, it's accessible and there is this sort of normalization and you know, and certainly, you know, adults use alcohol and most use it, mm-hmm. you know, recreationally and and don't are not alcoholics. And I, I think probably the same goes for, for marijuana use, but are there some specific concerns that we should have for kids? And, and maybe we can talk about little kids because there's some implications for the gummy that might be laying around, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think people are looking very carefully at this because we need to know, we, you know, if we're going to recommend against something, we need to have, rather than just I just think it's bad. I don't have any data to tell you that. We need to have data because that's, that is how we can educate our young people. We can educate our parents. We can educate, you know, just the population. So, you know, for the little guys, there's abundant data out there that with, with recreate, with legalization for recreational and medicinal, our young, our, our, Five and unders are getting into substance to getting into some of the particular 
particularly appealing forms of medicinal or recreational marijuana. So they're getting into the gummies, the soda that might, you know, liquids, the brownies, the candy, those kinds of substances. And there have been a number of reports of ingestions, toxic ingestions with kids coming into emergency rooms with the, 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 the main symptoms are ataxia, lethargy, and respiratory depression. So those, you know, in fact, it, in fact, I, I was reading an article that said if a toddler comes in with acute onset of ataxia and lethargy, you know, the first thing you need to do is get a tox screen because that it, it's almost like a, a well-described, it's more likely to be that than some of these other less common medical medical conditions, especially if you're in a state, if you're in a state where it's recreationally or medicinally um, available. So I think there have been attempts to try to make sure that there that these these substances are packaged. If you're going, if it's an if it's commercially available or through a dispensary or how, how however they are, there's there have been attempts made to put smaller amounts in a package and and to try to make them you know childproof or put you know put somehow put something on it that makes it clear that this is not this is not available for this is this is what what's present in this is marijuana or THC CBD and that it's got to be kept out of the hands of, of young people that being said we all know that some of these substances are you know they're going to be accessible to people you might you know you might get your own extract and make your own brownies it's not going to be in a toxic it's not going to be in a childproof container so I think there's real concern there. For the adolescents, I think the issue is what we worry about in terms of brain development. And I would say of all this, of all the side effects, there are some acute side effects with you know intoxication. Blood pressure can go up, heart rate can go up, and there have been some, you know, some there have been some reports of myocardial infarctions in young adults with acute ingestion, acute intoxication. But I think for the longer term from our adolescents, we're really worried about brain development. We know their brains are still developing. The kinds of things that are going on in an adolescent brain is that there's a pruning of, of connections and that there's myelination of connections that are important connections from lower parts of the brain to the frontal parts of the brain that are particularly important for executive functioning, decision-making, those kind, you know, consequence interpretation, things like that. And, and there is concern that the, mar- that the marijuana, the THC in marijuana sort of hijacks the normal kinds of pruning and development that may be taking place because there are, there are normal receptors in the brain for the endogenous forms of cannabinoids. And the THC is, is, can, can latch onto those same receptors. And what might be nor, what might be the role of these cannabinoids in normal pruning, development, myelination? The THC is going to hijack that. So we don't really understand yet what the trajectory of that could be, but we do know that it affects long term use affects memory and it affects some executive functioning. And there's some concern that it also increases the risk for some psychiatric disorders like anxiety and schizophrenia. So it's, I think we're still learning what the trajectory of, of brain development is in somebody who is say a moderate user or a, an early user compared to a heavy user. But I think the fact that the brain is still developing right up into mid-20s makes you makes me worry about the potential effect that, that it could have. If I'm, you know, an older person, maybe we, you know, maybe there's less the, the brain, the brain is less plastic, there's less development. So it may not be have the same consequences. But for for an adolescent, I think the the, the potential consequences are significant. What's the research out there as far as like, I mean, are, are they following longitudinally now? I mean, what, what kind of data is there, um, you know, that um, you, you know, can share with teens? Well, you know, there are some interesting, I mean, people have been looking at long-term use. 
and looking at brain structure. So are there parts of the brain that are affected? It's it just structure, smaller parts, larger parts. And then also looking at function. So fMRI studies, looking at, and, and these are longitudinal studies people that, that people are looking at to see over time how how does it how does it affect the things like spatial recognition, memory, retrieval, all those those kinds of things that are higher order uh, brain functions. I will say that the that the federal government, they, you know, there are several agencies in the federal government that are involved with the ABCD study. I don't know if that is the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development Study that was started about three or four years ago. And it's looking at about 14,000 um, children who were recruited at age nine to 10. And they are following those kids, those, those nine to 10 year olds through adolescent into young adulthood, looking specifically, they're looking at so many factors. It's, it's unbelievable what they're looking at. But they're looking one of the one of the areas they're particularly looking at is substance use and its effect on brain development. And they are looking at these kids doing cognitive assessments, fMRIs, structural brain studies to really look at the effect that the that substances, as well as many other factors, will are having in in longitudinally in ultimate ultimately. In, in brain development and, and cognitive, emotional, uh, emotional states. And that data is, is incredible, is going to be in, it's coming out now because we're, now those kids are now 11 and 12. Uh, but as they emerge into adolescence and then start using these substances, we are really going to have an incredible, an incredible wealth of, wealth of data. So stay tuned. And also in the meantime, there's reason to have caution and to, to share that, you know, that this might be a risk. And, you know, we don't know for sure, but it, there are some, there's some things out there that are suggesting that this may be an effect for you. And I, I just want you to know that. I mean, that might be a message to, to kids. So I think, is there something like a true THC addiction? Does that Absolutely. happen? Yes. Absolutely. You know, there is in the DSM-5, this cannabis use disorder. And uh, we know that we know that people will become addicted to cannabis and it's to the THC, uh, which is the main psychoactive substance as opposed to cannabidiol, which is which is different. That's what, what people are studying in terms of its therapeutic properties. But the, the THC, you know, there's some, there, the data is, it's tricky to find, but there's a thought that if you become a regular user, it's almost like 10, around 5 to 10% in some studies will become, will, will develop an addiction. We know that the earlier a person starts and earlier an adolescent starts, the more likely they are to become addicted. So then again, that tells you if, you know, if somebody's under the age of 14, there's a, you know, it's like three to four times more likely if somebody develops, becomes a regular user to develop an addiction to cannabis. And that tells you, you know, is there an early, earlier vulnerability? Is a younger, a, a younger brain even more vulnerable than somebody who is, starts smoking marijuana, say when they're 18 or 20 or 25? But the, the reason that we know this is because when people stop using it, they, there's a withdrawal syndrome. And it's also that, you know, we also know certain with addiction is that someone may be using it in the beginning to become intoxicated, but eventually they need more and more to get the same effect, or ultimately they need more and more to prevent the withdrawal. So it comes, moves from a positive reinforcement to a negative reinforcement. They're, they're using it so they won't feel, they won't feel bad when they stop using it. But if kids will go cold turkey, they feel like they're getting the flu. They feel very irritable. It affects sleep. They just in generally feel terrible. You know, they lose their appetite. They may lose weight. So there's specific syndrome that people are seeing in those who, who have an addiction and then go cold turkey or try to cut back and in cutting back experience, experience withdrawal. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think people know this stuff very well. I mean, I just don't think it's out there. I mean, do you think parents know about these risks or do you think it kind of gets blown off? I I think I you know, I think it gets blown off and I don't know whether it's because marketing of the products of marijuana has far outstripped the science. So, or the marketing about this about the usefulness of marijuana for all these qualifying conditions that all these states have approved and the sort of the drive to legalize it in many states for adults. I think the what what has gotten lost in the shuffle is the fact that that this is really an addictive substance. So, you know, and I think there's always a worry that when you start talking about that, people are like, oh, you're just getting, you're just giving me an emotional argument rather than something that's valid. So I think sometimes the science, the science has gotten a little bit lost in the drive to legalize. And, you know, many states are driving to legalize this because it brings incredible amounts of money into the coffers of a state. So what might be driving a state to legalize marijuana may not have anything like, oh, this is safe, so we're okay. It's just think of what we can just think of what we can do with the with the revenue that we will get from taxing taxing this. So the motives are are not you know the motives that are driving it are probably far outweigh and what we know about the science. Right, right. Well, and you know I think you're right that the sort of normalization and you know the fact that for many people that there may be some relief in pain and and difficulty sleeping and. And again, this is not really a conversation about the merits of THC or CBD in adults. We're really talking about kids because I think this is worry about their vulnerability to substances because of where their brain's at. I mean, the same is true of nicotine. I mean, nicotine's legal, but we know that early use, even if it's tiny bit, the kids are much more likely to become addicted to it. So uh, the other piece of that, and and the craft comes to mind, have you ever ridden in a car with anybody who's intoxicated? What about the parents? I mean, we're seeing a lot, I mean, in a lot of my families, I mean, parents were using, I've even had parents give it to their kids because they thought, you know, it might help calm them down or help them sleep. So mm-hmm. what about this parent use and modeling? Well, I mean, we know that, we know that, that, kids learn so much from their parents, you know, to do as I do, not do as I say, not as I do kind of, you know, when, when an adolescent or, you know, even an early, early, you know, an older child sees a parent using a substance, how that parent uses a substance, is it, you know, are they doing it responsibly? You could say the same thing with alcohol. How are they using alcohol? Are they using it responsibly? But when I think when a child sees the parent either smoking cigarettes or using using marijuana, that sends a, I think that sends a very strong message. So it's going to be hard for a teenager to believe a parent who says, you know, I don't want you using any substances. It's really important that you not use substance. And they turn around and they go off and and they're smoking marijuana with their friends. I think teenagers are not. I mean, they're smart individuals they will see they will see the 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 hypocrisy of that really so sort of like well why do you i mean i could see an adolescent saying well how can you tell me not to use this substance if you're using it and i don't know if too many parents could sit down and have a a, a good discussion about the vulnerability of your brain versus the vulnerability of an adult's brain <laughs> but so i think the message is if you're using it it must be okay so I think the modeling is a very, is a very, very strong thing. Yeah. yeah. I And, you know, you think about alcohol because it's so ubiquitous and, you know, most of us, you know, you have a celebration, you have a glass of wine or champagne and, you know, how do you do that in a way that says to your kids, you know, that this is a, I don't know if it's like a privilege of being an adult, but this is something as you get older that you, you know, and there's age limits because of safety concerns, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and maybe the messaging has, I, I don't think probably THC cannabinoid use is going to go away. 
So how do we like move into this new, new normal of what that's like? And, but I don't really think we've thought about that very much. I, I know, and I live in Kalamazoo and I mean, there are so many billboards for all of the businesses. I mean, oh. they're mm-hmm. everywhere. And that's your marketing, your marketing. Yeah. It, it's it's tremendous. And and you'd already alluded to, you know, tobacco and vaping. And I would agree, I think less cigarette use, but the vaping, and I think especially when it was the flavors. And, you know, mm-hmm. so I think that mm-hmm. the adult responsibility to go back and say, wait a minute, and, and the AAP has done a great job of this. This isn't safe for our kids. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's really safe. I, the idea somehow that it's safer than smoking a cigarette, but you know, that messaging again about safety and, and that there are some things that we can do to make these products less accessible, less interesting to kids. And, you know, I think, you know, I find that when I have an adolescent who's using marijuana or says, oh, I can't wait until I'm 18 because then I can get my marijuana card and I can use it to help my sleep or help my anxiety. You know, I mean, my role isn't to say, you know, whatever you're experiencing now is not valid because, you know, in the beginning, it might help them with sleep. It might help them with anxiety. It might chill them out a little bit. And, you know, and I recognize that that's a, that's a, that is a potent effect that that's going to have meaning for them. So, but what I see my role is saying, you know, I understand it might help you in the short term. In the long term, we know that if it's helping you with a little bit of anxiety right now over the long term, it's going to create more problems than it's going to solve. And I think that's where I think it's just saying, you know, I understand you might be having an effect right now, but let me tell you what's going to happen if you become a heavier regular user you are going, you're more likely to experience these effects. And I've had some of these adolescents say, I had no idea it was going to do that. That's pretty, although they'll say, you know, that's pretty scary to think that I'm, I'm going to get an effect from it now, but it could really create way more problems for me down the line. And I think that's the kind of message, you know, I'm not, I'm not there to try to scare them. I'm just there to give them give them sound information. And I'll say, we know this to be the case. This is not me just trying to convince you, you know, otherwise. I said, we have science for this. And, you know, and I find that sometimes that is sometimes the only thing that they might hear because they know I'm coming at it from a perspective of understanding the science. This is what I know. And, and I don't want you to be in a position where, you know, no longer are you going to be getting a benefit, but you're going to be having a longer term effect that maybe it might be really hard to reverse. And I think that this is a, a place where primary care, because we have these longitudinal relationships with kids and they they trust us that we really care about them. And I mean, I remember one of my patients one time saying, hey, can I ask you a question? What do you think about marijuana use? And, you know, I mean, that was really an amazing entry to say, well, I, you know, there's concern. We don't know everything. And that that was several years ago. But, you know, this kind of knowledge is power and it's really our responsibility to share the knowledge. I mean, what you do with the knowledge, I mean, you know, you, you can't make somebody do that. But to, to, it's almost like we're withholding that information and, yeah. and that it's our job. Just, I guess one of the interventions is just sharing with kids. These are a couple of things I need, I need you to know about alcohol, about vaping, about marijuana, because you're going to encounter these. I mean, there's no way that you're not. And even as you enter adulthood and some of the risks may be less, would you like to hear some, can I share some of these things with you? And that may be an approach just to, you know, that the only intervention is I I have some information. Maybe that would be helpful for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it feels like using a tool like the craft is kind of an entry into that. One of the questions I always used to like to ask was, what do you like about it? You know, what's what, you know, why, why are you using that? Like, why are you using, but what about using I had one kid that was heroin. What is it about the heroin use that that appeals to you that you keep using it? And and I think that is often a key because what I think that they might be using it and they're using it for a very different reason. And and then if it's for anxiety, 
I mean, you have the opportunity to offer something else. I th- you know, I, I absolutely agree. And I always try to ask that question as well to, to understand, you know, what's the motivation to using? And you're right. Sometimes the question, the answers you get are, are not anything you would ever have anticipated. And it, it also, it also gives you the opportunity to have a conversation. It's like, I'm really interested. What, what, what do you get out of it? What, what does it do for you? And sometimes it's just to be with their other, their friends to feel like they're, um, they're part of a friend group. But sometimes it's, it's, it's a way to medicate themselves in a way that I can say, you know, I understand you're having some anxiety, but you know, over the long term, it's not going to help. So maybe we can find another way to help you with that. And you know, that just that just has has you. You're not saying you absolutely have positively have to stop this, and I'm going to talk to your parents about this. It 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 allows you to to reach out and let them know you're interested in what what their experience is and how else you might be able to help them. So, so it sounds like one of the first interventions that we can can do is just having the conversation. I mean, just that in and of itself and listening, kind of identifying motivation. What if we're really concerned about problematic use and, you know, what interventions do we have at hand? Because I know in our community, we just we just don't have, I mean, we certainly don't have inpatient services. Um, and outpatient, you know, some therapists are comfortable with it, some not. So are there some strategies that we can use at least in the short term? And, and what about for those kids with really heavy use? What, what do we need? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think the some of your screens can, you know, not only determine if there's use, but if you, if they're experiencing consequences, and that's where that's why I think the the craft is helpful because it's not just a screen. It also gives you an idea of whether there's some problematic use, like somebody who's using alone, or somebody who's already gotten into some trouble, suspended from school, or friends are telling them to cut down. That's somebody that's that's probably you know in in using problematically. Is it addiction? You know, or we, we call it a substance use disorder, but, you know, it might indicate that you need you need help. Maybe you need somebody to be able to do a full diagnostic evaluation to help you out. That's where your psychiatrist can help. But I think before you get to that point, I mean, I try to use, you know, sort of the brief motivational tools. And, you know, I, I use one that that takes me about five, it really could take me about five to seven minutes. And it's really designed to review the results of the screen, ask the young person if it's okay to talk about it, give a little bit of education, but but also explore that young person's motivation to change. And and I like, I like, I always like to give them the, you know, on a scale of one to 10, you know, how willing are you to change? And you know, they give me a two or a three. I always say, well, that's great, but why aren't you a one? And they always think I'm going to say, why aren't you a 10? Why are you not, you know? And I I like, because then it says, well, you've given me, you, you know, telling me you're 30 to 40% there. Why, why are you there? Why aren't you a 10%? And it, it, what it does is it gives them it, it asks them to give me reasons why they think they should change. Then you can have the conversation, which is, okay, these are some good reasons, but what you're doing, you know, you're telling me you want to go to college, for example, but what you're doing is really, you know, maybe going to make that not, not a goal that you'll be able to attain. So why, why is it what you want to do and what you're doing? Where, why is there this discrepancy? And can we talk about that? And it also gives me opportunity if somebody's like says, I'm a zero, I'm not going to change. Then I can say, all right, but what would have to happen for you to want to make a change? And the answers I often get are really, really revealing. You know, they might say, well, I'd have to get arrested for me to change. And then I'm like, well, do you understand what the consequences? So that gives you an, a different, it gives you a different opening for having a different conversation. And then, you know, 
you can do this very quickly. It's like, okay, you've got these reasons. So what do you want to do? What do you want? What do you want to do? Because it has to come from them uh, rather than me saying, I think you need to cut down. You know, you need to ask them, what, what do you think you can do? And these are the kind of things that can be done. Can The conversation can be started very, very quickly, very briefly. And then, you know, then it's like, okay, let's see in a couple of weeks. Let's see what happens. Are, you know, let's see if you're able to these changes that you've suggested. This is great. It's a start. Let's see in a couple of weeks. So so you don't have to do it all in, in one visit in an office because you, you there are so many things you have to accomplish in that in that visit. If it's a well child visit, you've got so many things you've got to be able to accomplish. So you may not have all of this time to devote, but it you know, the five minutes you can start the conversation. And then I think it's important to bring that young person back. Because what what your intervention might need to be is to get that young person to agree to be seen for a more diagnostic evaluation or to agree even even to consider being admitted to a program if if you feel like that's what's really needed. You know, it um, sounds like there's tremendous power in our having these discussions. I mean, I think we underestimate our inner the, the impact of our voice. So how effective are these? I mean, this falls into the expert, right? How yes. effective are expert, expert interventions? You know, the, there are very few studies that have been done on adolescents. They have been shown to be very effective in adults, particularly around alcohol and tobacco use. There are fewer fewer studies in primary care settings for other for other drugs illicit drugs in adults, but they've been, but expert and these brief interventions in primary care settings have been shown to be probably one of the most effective ways to change behavior in adults around tobacco and alcohol. We, you know, there are fewer studies in adolescents. We need, we need to do them. You know, I, I think it's not that the data has shown they don't work, it's just that there's not enough data to show that they've worked really well. So that's why the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force are not recommending them because there's insufficient data. Uh, so I think, you know, we, we, we need to know more about are they effective and what it is, what is it about them that's effective? Um, so I, I think the story's, the story's out. But I, I mean, I use that because I don't have, I don't have any other tools to use. Um, really, that you know, that's pretty much what you know. Using something motive, you know, based in motivational interviewing that really gets the input from the young person to get their buy-in. That's about that's that's pretty much all that I have available to me in the in, sort of in the office in the office setting. I'm wondering too at at what point do you talk to parents about the use? I mean, parents may know. I mean, certainly if the kids have gotten caught, you know, they've gotten, you know, stopped by law enforcement. If they got caught at a party or at school, then the parents know. But at what point do you, I mean, there's that confidentiality and that relationship we're trying to buy with the teen. And, you know, they said, you know, well, I've smoked maybe 10 times. Do we tell the parent? I mean, what's your, what's your pearls on that? Well, that is really tricky. And that's always, you know, it's, it's up to the discretion of the provider. And boy, that puts you in the, that puts you in the, in the hot seat. But, you know, I, and I have to say, so many of the, the kids that I see in referral are dragged in, dr- literally dragged in by the parents. So it's, it's less of an issue. But if you've got somebody in the primary care setting and you're doing your screening and you've got the parent out of the room and that young person reveals to you that they're using substances, I think the issue is safety. If you feel that that young person is doing something that really endangers them, then, you know, confidentiality, you have to break confidentiality. But up to that point, I think it's really important that you're able to keep it confidential because that's that's why you need to have the conversation. You, the parents are not going to be able to tell you what that young person's been doing, how their use has changed, how much they're using. And we know parents routinely underestimate what their teenagers are doing, even when they know they're doing something. 
are using a substance, they they really they really underestimate the amount and the danger that the young person is putting themselves in. So so I have to get the information from that young person. And the best way I'm going to get it is to is to create an alliance and reach out to that young person it without as much as possible confidentially so that I can do my my education to them. I can also start to do my intervention about behavior change and monitoring and things like that. And and trying to keep it as much information as possible confidential confidential unless this young person is getting in a car after they've been drinking and driving and you know that's they're putting themselves at tremendous risk that's when I have to get I have to get the parent I, I would suspect that most primary care clinicians are are in this same camp um, mm-hmm. I think we walk a fine line sometimes and you're trying to figure out where's your most impact for safety. And, you know, again, for problematic use, again, the parents oftentimes know. And so, you know, there's, you know, and I know that with parents, you know, wanting to drug test their kids when they know they're already using, and it's like, well, I could do that, but I'm not sure it really adds to the conversation. And I I don't Mm -hmm. think coercing them to do that or, you know, doing it on the sly builds confidence. I mean, you can say to the kid, you know, your parents are would really like you to do this drug testing. You know, what do you think? What, what's it going to show if we did that? You know? So, yeah. It, it's, it doesn't tell you what you know, what you need to know. It no. tells the point in time. It doesn't tell you why is the use increasing? When did they start? What are the circumstances? It just, it, you know, it confirms something. Right, right. And, and there are there are uh, uses for it, especially if you're in treatment, somebody's in treatment and you want to monitor their treatment and it's an approved kind of thing. But um, beyond that, it, it doesn't tell you what you need to know. And that's where the conversation is so important. Well, I, I, I surely appreciate the work that you're doing. And it sounds like there's so much more room for research so that we can really, you know, inform our, our kids and our, their parents and, you know, our, our society about, you know, what's good for kids is what we're doing. Is this best for children? And how do we do it in a way that's safest? How do we keep them safe and let them thrive? So any, any final pearls that you have for listeners? Well, we didn't get much time to talk about um, the vaping. You alluded to it, but you know, that's probably when I mentioned, you know, we've seen all of these declines in things, probably the one area that we have not seen declines. In fact, we've seen dramatic increases is the use of e-cigarettes in our adolescents. It was, you know, from 2016 to 2018, huge increases. It's kind of leveled off in the past year. But there are significant numbers of our young people who are using cigarettes. And I think that's where the academy came in and really pushed some of the, really supported the legislation to reduce, to take away the flavors because we know they were marketed to young people. So I think that is, that's probably of, along with marijuana and Yes, continued alcohol use. The the e-cigarettes is really the is probably one of the biggest issues that we need to look at and say how can we get our young people not not to use these because the nicotine I tell my I tell my adolescents it is the most addicting substance we have much more than methamphetamine or cocaine or heroin it is highly highly addictive. Uh, and it doesn't take much. Uh, adolescents, we know, become more addicted to to nicotine than it, more quickly than adults do for whatever reason. And there are also brain effects um, of nicotine, uh, along with many other effects. But I think that is that's that is a, a, a big concern, a big concern, and something that I think the I know you know public health people are looking to you know. How do we how do we get messages across to our young people that this is not a good idea? Yes, that's that's another frontier that we have. Right, right. Well, it sounds like the things that pediatricians can do is one ask about use, talk about what we do know, the science, share as much knowledge that we can because 
we need to empower kids to make good decisions for themselves, mm-hmm. advocating for safety where we can. And I, I mean, that's a big, that's a big chunk, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. we can, mm-hmm. we can do those things. Absolutely. 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 Yes. Well, I always like to close my interviews with asking my guests, if you could go back and give yourself advice when you were a resident, what would you say? Well, that's a hard question because, you know, I wouldn't say, well, I would go into adult medicine. <laughs> you know, I would not say that. And it's been a great, it's been a great ride for me. Interesting, fascinating. You know, I think probably one of the things that I got sort of advice about that if I look back at, you know, people tried to steer me away from focusing on public health. And, you know, I think if, if I had to, you know, I wish I had, I was interested in public health, not as part of a part of medicine. And I think in, you know, if I, I probably should have listened to myself more than people would have pulling me away from public health because it's so important in what we're doing. And whether it meant I would have gotten an MPH or maybe done more research, had more research in public health, you know, as I move through my recognizing how important it is and what we do in knowing how to reach populations of our young people, uh, I think if I'd sort of not listen to somebody telling me, oh, you don't want to do anything in public health, that's probably the one thing I might Sounds have. like uh, trust yourself, right? Yes, right. yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much t- for your time and for the work that you're doing. And I know that there's so much work to do in this realm. I think it's it's encouraging and exciting that the use has decreased. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think we have to figure out why and do more of it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, thank you for making the world a better place for kids. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This was a great conversation and I appreciate the work that you do with your blog. I'm uh, very impressive. Well, thank you. Thank you so much and have a great day. You too. Bye-bye, Leah. This is such a thought-provoking conversation and boy, it really made me stop and think about the impact of substances on youth brains and how important it is for kids to understand that. We really have to be sharing that information. So here are my takeaways. Number one, a huge thank you to Dr. Ryan for joining us. Number two, teen substance use has actually dropped from the 1990s to present for all substances except for vaping nicotine. That use skyrocketed during 2016 to 2018. Substance use during the pandemic has appeared to drop a bit, but it's unclear why that is. And there's still concern about that 18 to 25-year-old group where some substance use then has jumped. So, you know, more research is definitely needed. Number three, what we do know is that the earlier the use of any substances, the higher the risk of substance use disorder and addiction. Number four, with many states legalizing both recreational and medicinal THC use, the rate of THC use has increased across all states, not just those where it was legalized. Why is unclear, but Dr. Ryan postulates that it may be the belief that by normalizing or legalizing THC, then it must be safe. Number five, we're talking about use and effects of THC cannabinoids on children and teens now and and what we know and don't know. So I'm not really applying this to adults out there, but for that population with, you know, that brain development going on, that's who we're talking about today. Number six, what we do know is that there is an increase in accidental ingestion of THC in the under five as foods and candies have become more accessible. Intoxication looks like ataxia, lethargy, and respiratory depression, and emergency rooms may presume that ingestion with the presentation until a a urine drug screen is done. So if the kids come in and they're wobbly and tired, they may go right to that rule-out diagnosis first. Number seven, we need to look at safety measures. These products are out there, right? but how do we make them less accessible to those kids who are so vulnerable, those little ones? Think about child safety caps that were developed for over-the-counter and prescription meds. So, 
you know, we need to take this seriously. Number eight, for teens, the risk is to brain development. During adolescence and into the mid-20s, the brain is undergoing pruning and myelination, and THC appears to be hijacking this process. Functional MRIs have demonstrated these, cha these changes to connectivity. Number nine, this impacts the pathways from the lower CNS to the prefrontal cortex, the home of executive function. Long-term use can affect memory and increase the risk for psychiatric conditions, including anxiety and even schizophrenia. Kids and parents need this information. It is their right to know. Number 10, acute cannabinoid intoxication in teens and adults can look like increased blood pressure, increased heart rate, and even myocardial infarction. And it should be considered if there is that presentation. Number 11, the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study, or the ABCD study, was funded by NIDA and is looking at the effects of substance use, environmental, social, genetic, and other biologic factors on developing teen brains. The study includes 14,000 kids starting at age 9 to 10 and then following them longitudinally. This is a landmark study that will hopefully shed more light on brain development and what substance use looks like on the teen brain. Number 12, cannabinoid addiction is a real thing and is listed in the DSM-5, and it may affect as many as 5 to 10% of regular users. Again, the earlier the use and the heavier use, the higher the risks. THC abuse and addiction look like dependence, tolerance, that needing to more to achieve an effect or relief, withdrawal, and functional impairment. This is a chronic condition characterized by repeated attempts to quit followed by relapse. Number 13, marketing has outstripped the science with real revenue to states that legalize. So we really need to advocate for safety. Number 14, kids learn from what they see. We all know that. Are parents modeling responsible use? Are they driving while high? And, and of course, this behavior applies to alcohol and nicotine use as well. Number 15, asking kids why they use may give an insight to underlying conditions like anxiety and depression. The relief from use may be very real in the short term, but the concern is what happens in the long run. Number 16, so what to do? so that we can empower teens to make decisions about their health. SBIRT, or Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment, has been found to be very effective in adults in behavior change. We need more research in teens, but it is something you can do now. Number 17, screen universally with a validated tool like the CRAFT, and we talked about that with Dr. Quigley as well. It is easy it covers all substances of abuse and includes scripting and risk overview that can be shared with teens. It's a really powerful tool, and I, I think it's worth incorporating it into your routine well-child care. Number 18, brief intervention looks like motivational interviewing. Review the screen, ask permission, educate, assess motivation to change, empower, and then evaluate response to intervention. Number 19, and here's a tough one. Do you tell parents? This is a super gray area, and I know we have all been there. It, you know, the answer is it depends. We have to balance the need for alliance and confidentiality with the teen and with risk to safety. Number 20, research resources in your area. Are there therapists with substance use training? Are there outpatient or inpatient options for serious addiction? You know, what's available in your state? Number 21, kids deserve to know the risks. It is our responsibility to share the information we do have and to conduct further research. Number 22, check out the American Academy of Pediatrics Policy Statement at Clinical Reports and see the show notes. There are several links. And Advocate for safety. That is something we can do. 
think about what happened with flavorings for, um, you know, vaping nicotine products. I mean, it was a big push from pediatricians that had resulted in some of those changes being made. Number 23, never underestimate your power to instill change. When kids hear it from us, they may listen. So don't be afraid to to ask and really go into a little bit why kids are using. And, you know, perhaps you are that one voice of reason. Thank you, as always. If you have time, I would love for you to rate and review the podcast. And I really look forward to you joining me because next week, because um, there is just one great episode after another coming up. I have been so fortunate to have such wonderful guests and I really appreciate them. And I appreciate all of you for taking the time to listen. Please let me know if you have other topics of interest. You can always DM me at Pediatric Meltdown on Instagram, and I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.